Well, we're going to get started. We're not going to have any music this evening. Alex has got some things going on with school. He was going to come down and sing a few songs and then leave. And I said, just take care of your school. Well, we got a lot to talk about today anyway. And so we're going to jump on in. By all means, get coffeeed up, get sugared up with the cookies. Mary, thank you for the cookies. And we'll start with a word of prayer again as we step into this book. Lord, I thank you for this evening. I thank you for everyone who's able to make it here tonight. And I pray, Lord, that our time together would be helpful, Lord, that you would give us understanding in the things that Paul has written, the things that you have for us through these words. And may you help me to convey these things clearly as we start to come to a place in this book where Paul really starts to unfold what he is trying to say to those at the church in Rome and to us as well. And again, thank you for your blessings to us, Lord. We do uh, ask your hand be upon those who are suffering, Lord, those who are being persecuted in Iraq, those who are struggling even, the friends that we know in many different areas, Lord, may our hearts continue to be sensitive to the needs of others and not just to our own world. May we be people who love even as you loved. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, we're continuing our series in Romans. We're going to try and cover chapter 7 and chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It's a lot, so I don't know if we will make it. I want to try and cover it because it's really dealing with the same thing. Of course, he's been dealing with this same theme since chapter 5. But just so you know what we're covering. And as we get started, we got to lay some things down that we've been talking about because they're leading us into this. Remember, Paul is writing to the church that is there at Rome. Now, the church previously, probably a year before or so, was predominantly Gentile because the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor had kicked out all the Jews. When the Roman Emperor died, the Jews were able then to come back in which brought into the church those who were from the Jewish ethnicity and heritage. And as they came in, they came in with a lot of Jewish ideology that was still a part of their lives. And so now you've got these Gentile Christians who've kind of had the run of the place coming in having to deal with the Jewish Christians, and there was a lot of tension. The Jewish Christians we're wanting the Gentile Christians to recognize that this is a Jewish faith, that Jesus was a Jew and he came from our people. The Gentiles were saying, hey, we've been doing fine without you. You know, now you're coming here putting all this law and stuff on us and we don't care for it. And now it's causing division and Paul is seeing the need for a unity here at this church, because this is really the hub of the world, especially for him to go on 
into Spain and to some other areas. And so there's this tension, and so Paul is writing to the Roman church, and he is dealing very specifically with the Jewish believers, but he's dealing with them in a way as to not cause friction between them and the Gentile believers. And so he's trying to reaffirm the heritage that is indeed Jewish, but move them to a place where they see that the Jewish law is no longer something that the Christian needs to be under, and that has been kind of what he's been building on throughout this. And so he's talked about their belief in the one God, what it means to have the one God. He's talked about election. Election is an important part because he's coming to a head at what that means. Election to the Jewish mind was we have been called by God to be God's representatives. And God called specifically one man, which was Abraham. He is the father of faith. And through him, he was going to bless the nation. Now, after Abraham, they received the law, and the law is where Paul is really dealing with them in this book because they believed that it was through the law that God was going to redeem the world. God was going to use the nation of Israel to redeem the world, but it wasn't going to be through the law. And he's been explaining to them more and more what the law was or is and was about. And remember last week we talked about Adam and how the Jewish people are in Adam. And now he's bringing us to a place where we are in Christ. That our identity is now found in Christ and not found in Adam and how the law shined a light, as it were, that God used the law to make sin increase. And when it says increase, what he means is it spotlighted it. It made it very clear what sin was, and it pointed to their need because they were in Adam. And just as in one man's sin, all are now under sin, in the same way, or in a better way, actually, through Christ, all who are now in this area of sin have found redemption. So one man caused the fall of everyone and one man saved everyone. And so that's kind of where we're finding ourselves dealing with this. And that's the context that we find ourselves here in chapter 7. And we'll read the first three verses and talk about that and slowly go through that. He says, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, you should underline that because that is an important part of understanding who he's talking to and what he's saying. He's spelling it out at the beginning. I am speaking to those who know the law, which would be who? The Jews, right? Gentiles don't know the law. That's not their belief system. The Jews know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. For example... By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. 
But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, many have tried to connect this illustration and say, well, a woman is bound to the husband and is set free. The Christian is bound to the law, but is set free. But it's not actually the law that dies. A clear understanding of this illustration is that we see the law as the thing that joins the woman to the husband. If the husband dies, the law has no claim on her. Okay, and so it's important to understand what he's talking about when he says, if the husband dies, well, what, how does that affect the law? Well, the law that was binding the husband and the wife together has no power if that husband is dead. And so now she is under this accountability. If she sleeps with someone, has sexual relationships, then she's an adulteress. But if the husband dies and she's married another, she's free from that law. But then he goes on and he adds a little twist to it that's a little bit more, causes it to get a little cloudy. He says, but my, so verse four, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who raised, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law, we were, we, excuse me, let's try that verse five again. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The old you. My brothers and sisters, you also died. And that's kind of what he's talking about. The old you. That is what he's describing as the woman plus the husband and the law joining them. That's what you were. This is the status you were in. That old you has also died. The you which was a human being who was connected to Adam. That's The law is always pointing us and shining the light on Adam. It's the revelation of the sin that befell the human race because of Adam. And so the old you is what he's describing as that woman plus husband and the law joining them. And, and that's why he's bringing this about. The you, which was the human being who was in Adam. Now you have died. How, has he, how have we died? What did he say in chapter 6? What was this means of death? No. Chapter 6, verse 6. What did it say? For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. We should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free. What was the symbol of our dying to sin? It was baptism. Okay, didn't hear you back there. Okay, so it's a symbol of baptism. And baptism, it's summing up, it's symbolizing, it's enacting the follower of Christ to the new solidarity, the new family of Christ. You have died 
to this and you are alive to this. And so we have this new family. And so baptism is this symbol of our change. And that's why baptism is so important because I have died to this way of life and I am alive to the life that Christ gives. It is a symbol. It connects us to this newness of life and it's a recognition that that old life is gone. You see, when the husband dies, the Adamic identity goes. That's the husband died. Well, okay, that's this represents the husband. When the husband's died, that is died. I don't have to identify myself to that name, to that family anymore. That goes, and as a result, the obligation of the law, the obligation of Torah goes as well. So when Christ died and we died with him, we died (coughs) to that identity. We died and represents that in our baptism. We've given ourselves over. We're dead to that. And the Torah is now gone as well because the Torah was binding you to the Adamic solidarity. That's what chapter 5 verses 12 through 21 we're talking about. That whole idea of it's connecting you to that solidarity. In chapter 5, verse 20, it says, The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. What does it mean? The law was brought in so that it might illuminate that law, that it might solidify the Adamic state of these people who were under the law. It was made to show them their condition. You are connected to Adam. And so... That's what happens. When the husband dies, the Adamic identity goes. As a result, our obligation to the law is gone. We are no longer under this authority. Now that the old husband has died, that law, the Torah, no longer has that claim to the people who are under it. And so in chapter, verse 4, the second part of it, For B, it says that you might belong to another, to him who raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. You see, fruit for death would be the Adamic solidarity. Fruit for God is the Christian solidarity. We're now bearing fruit to this life that we belong to. And so we might belong to another. And notice the we that he's talking about. He keeps using this word we. He's identifying himself with the Jewish people. Remember, at the beginning, Paul is Jewish. He's not a Gentile who knows Jewish things. He is Jewish, and he is bringing the theology of God that has been given to the Jewish people now to the Gentile people. And so he uses this frame of work or frame of words all the time. When we, and he's talking about us in verse Five, that we bore fruit unto death. Now by dying the once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. And so he keeps connecting them to this new way. And notice the words that they're taking a place for we, for us, and then for this death that he talks about, this death. In verse six, Christ and the spirit do the job that the law wanted to do but could not. He says, now by dying, 
to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It is the Spirit who now joins us to Christ, and it is this new work that Christ has done, this new solidarity he's brought us into. He has now done what the law could not do. The law was unable to do it. The law was weak in this what it could do, which, which brings a question. And the way you divide this chapter up is really by the questions. So he starts off, do you not know, brothers and sisters? And then he's going to continue with another question. And so these questions break the idea because he's just asked a question and he's brought the answer, but that answer brings more questions. And so he's now saying that the dying in Christ has brought us freedom, that we were once bound to this written code. We're now free from the husband and the law that held us together. And so the question would come in verse 7, so what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? If it's been done away with, if we had to die to this Adamic family and the law revealed this and the law was exemplifying this and shining the light, well, is the law sinful? Is the law something that we need to deal with in a sinful way? And so let's read verses 7 through 11. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And though the commandment put me to death, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. We read through verse 12. So the way to divide it, again, is this question. The question still comes up from, actually, chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the trespass might increase. Remember, he asked that question, but he didn't quite answer all the questions that would arrive from that. So now he's building on that, and he's bringing those questions. Remember, throughout this book, we've been dealing with the law and its effects. All right? In chapter 2, verse 1 through 16, it's not the hearers or the possessors of the law who are justified, but the doers of the law. Chapter 2, verse 17 to 29, we saw that a boast that they had the law was false because they were in exile. They broke the law, and the exile was proof of that breaking the law. In fact, there was a fulfilling of the law by those who were uncircumcised. If those who don't know the law do the law, then there's a law in themselves. And so we see that this law is still at the fundamental part of this whole argument that he's bringing about here, trying to get this known. In chapter 3, verse 20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, God's righteousness is revealed apart from the law. It's revealed through Abraham. Okay, if it was revealed through the law, then only the Jews would benefit. And so he points to Abraham saying, no, God had started this agreement before the law was ever 
introduced. Chapter 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. And so he's been talking about this law and this trespass, how it's increasing. It's been the questions that keep coming out throughout this book. And the difference between sin and transgression, we've talked about those, right? The idea of sin and transgression. Sin is going astray. It's missing the mark. And so the idea here is the fact that sin is missing the target. Transgression, it's that the law draws a line on the ground. And if you cross that line, it means you transgress it. And so where, where sin is just this falling, this maybe not knowing, unaware, but you do something, you miss the target, that's a sin, but transgression is crossing the line. How do we know what the line is? The law painted the line. The law drew, drew the line. The law drew the line and said, if you cross this line, then you have broken the law. And so he uses covetousness as an example. I didn't know what coveting was, except the law said, you shall not covet. And then all of a sudden I realized, hey, I really do covet. I really wish I had that car. I really wish I had that house. I really wish I had whatever it was. And now I'm aware of the fact that I covenant. What did the law do? It shined a light on the Adamic nature. It made sin increase. Following me? The law helped us to see what was there, helped us to see the sin, helped us to see that we are breaking those things. And so through the law comes the awareness. Paul's point throughout is that though Israel has been given God's holy and just law, because he never says the law is bad or evil. In fact, that's the point he's trying to make. Although Israel has been given God's holy and just law, Israel is also in Adam. And in spite of her best intentions, she continues to break the law so that the law can only condemn her. How do we know that she continually breaks the law? Well, the evidence to Israel was that they were in exile. Exile was proof of their sin. And that's why they couldn't say that they were in right standing with God because at this time, Rome is still over them. So how can we be okay with God if we are in exile? Because the Messiah is going to bring us right and that includes getting us out of this position of exile. He is going to raise us up even as from the dead as Ezekiel talks about. And so we see that they are in this condition of transgression. The law there, with, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no awareness of that line and transgressing that line. And so he's bringing these things about and he's helping them to understand what that is. And, and so we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, now I am not being pointed to Adam any longer. This, this line, this transgression of the law, I'm just going to put trans here, is pointing us to the fact that we have sinned, but I'm not under that. I'm now in the spirit, and I'm now living for the life that Christ is to give us. And then in chapter 7, verses 7, Really, to the end, we have this dialogue where Paul just seems like he's a little schizophrenic. 
He seems like he's got a split personality, and, and there's a lot of understanding that we need to, a lot of things that people explain this. And we're going to read it, and we're going to break it up into a couple of parts. But let's read chapter 7 to the end of the chapter. It says, excuse me. Okay, yeah. Chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was. It had not said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death because it showed me where I was. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. Interesting. Sin deceived me. It's reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3. The serpent beguiled me and I ate. Sin deceived me. That's going to be important as we go on. Verse 12. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Verse 13. Did that which is good then become death to me? There's another question, which is bringing a whole other topic. By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh. If it says sinful nature, it means flesh. New International Version really blows it in this translation. For I have desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Isn't it like, what's going on here, Paul? Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. There are a lot of questions we need to ask in these verses, especially 13 through on. Okay, There are a lot of people who try and understand what is Paul talking about. And one of the thoughts is Paul is talking about a a pre-Christian spiritual experience. That is, what I felt like what it felt like for Paul before his conversion. Okay, C.H. Dodd is one of the people who talks about this in his commentary. 
Paul in Philippians, however, says that he was doing just fine as a Jew under the law. In fact, he said he was blameless. And so it seems to be a little contradiction in what Paul believed himself to be and what that translation or idea of this translation would be. And so it doesn't seem that it's a pre-Christian spiritual state. Like before I was in Christ, this is how I felt. And then there are some who think it's a a semi-Christian position. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the Reformed thinking goes along this line. It's a position that someone who delights in the law of God has already had a heart opened to hear the law and that it is a good thing. But then we see from Romans chapter 6, it's right and we're aware that you know I'm in sin and so I can't deny that. And so here this person is poised, kind of like Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, you know, in a position where he is aware, awakened to the call of God, but isn't actually finding peace yet with God. And so some believe he's a semi-Christian position. In other words, my heart is open to God, but I haven't yet found peace with God. But there are still some problems that we have with that passage because it really doesn't answer the position of where he's at at the time. The normal Christian experience, some people think, that this is it. This is what it means to be a Christian. You know, the Christian who is is called, who's in Christ, who's equipped by the Spirit, but is not fully what they long to be, and still still sin is just haunting after them. And you see, if we were to ask the question, does the Christian escape this state of wanting to be holy, but still have to deal with the fact that they're not as holy as they would like to be? Well, then the answer would be yes. I mean, I think we'd all agree that that's true. I'm not as holy as I'd want to be. I'd like to be better, but that's not really the question that Paul has been asking. If that's the way the question is presented, then we'd agree. But Paul, however, is asking questions about the Torah. He's asking questions about the law. And we can't just ignore that. That's what he's been talking about the last since chapter 2. We talked about that, the law in chapter 2, the law in chapter 3, the law in chapter 4, the law in chapter 5, the law in chapter 6, and now all of a sudden we forget the law and we're just talking about us as Christians. See, he's still talking about the Torah, about the law. He's not saying, let's have a dialogue about our Christian experience now. Even though we've been talking about the law, the law, the law, this is not a transcript of how it felt. It is a Christian analysis of the problem of those under Torah without Christ. It's the Christian analyzing what it's like to be under the law without Christ, and Paul identifies with that very strongly. Remember, law is not about the moral right or wrong. What the law is, or those who are under the law, to the Jews who are claiming the law as their identity. In other words, it's not saying, okay, if you're under the law, you are aware of these just bad things that you do. The law has more than that as its intention. And Paul wasn't trying to say, well, if you just be aware of the bad things that you're doing, then you can come to the good things in Christ, kind of like Ray Comfort 
does a lot with the law. You know, if we can make people aware of the law, then they'll be aware of sin. But that's not what Paul was trying to do. Paul was trying to get them to see that their identity in the law led them to another place. And so I believe that this passage is Israel under the Torah analyzed from a Christian point of view. That is what it felt like for Paul as a Jew living under the Torah. It was what now Paul, it wasn't what Paul felt as a Jew because he felt okay as a Jew, but what it is is Paul now in Christ knowing what is true about the law. Okay, Paul is now taking on to himself this identity of what it is to be a Jew under the law. And he's using a rhetoric, a style, because he wants the people to know he's not anti-Semitic. So he's not going to be saying, so then, you know, by no means, if it was you, why he says, I am doing this thing, I am unspiritual, instead of saying you are unspiritual, because if he were to be saying you are unspiritual and you are sinning in your mind and sinning in these things, it would bring a condemnation on the law and it would also bring a condemnation on to the Jewish people. And he's not anti-Semitic. He's still identifying with the Jewish people. In fact, chapter 9, he says, I could wish myself accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. And so nothing in this book is meant to be anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, and he's not saying the law is bad. In fact, he's trying to get us to a place and hopefully we'll get there tonight, where he shows us that the law did its job. But you have to let go so that you can now come to Christ because the law is connecting you to that Adamic nature. And so he's taking on this rhetoric so that he's identifying himself, his flesh, with his Jewish kinsmen. And so he tells us this so that he can identify with the story. And he does that again in chapter 9 through 11. Paul builds on this and he sees his flesh as that connection, his Jewish kinsmen, as out of tune with the will of God. There is also a familiarity about this rhetoric style of writing with some of the Psalms. And so the Jewish mind is going to hear, why is this happening to me? And they're going to identify it because it's throughout the Psalms. Why, O oh Lord, would you cause us to be in this place? Why would you leave us? Take not your spirit from me. All these Psalms that deal with this in a very similar way, Paul is identifying himself with the Jewish people so that he can clearly represent what is taking place here to them. And so we see that as he starts dialoguing here with them in these verses, what he's trying to do is bring about an understanding of where they're at. He's dealing about the law in a past tense. He's talking about the law in this tense. And again, he says in chapter 7, verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang into life and I died God gave us life back in Genesis. And then in Exodus, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. In Exodus, we saw when the law was brought down, it was brought down and it accompanied what? Sin, idolatry. Immediately when the law was given, sin was present. 
And there's a clear identification here between the law that God gave and the golden calf. And it was looked back on Israel in a similar way as to the fall of Adam was the fall of Israel in Exodus when the law was given. And so he's bringing them to this place of understanding it is all about this law that you're locked into. And so did this good, the law, become the means of my death, which is what he's asking in verse 13. Did this which is good become death to me? And he says, no, it's still sin which lives in me, but still works through the law. Still works through the Torah. Just as Adam is under this argument of sin in chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, we see that Cain is kind of under the argument, verses 13 through 20, where sin was crouching, waiting to consume Cain. The law is there waiting to reveal the sin that is there. It seems that Paul could be saying that Israel's continued existence under the Torah is like Cain. Though she wants to do well, sin is crouching and desires to master her, is wanting to take over. And so we see that continued thought process bouncing back and forth. There's a change of terms in verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I or the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. There's a change of tense. This is present tense. I am unspiritual. So that it can't be referring to the Christian because the Christian is not unspiritual. And it's important that we recognize this because otherwise we identify with some of it. But then Paul says some things like, well, no, it's no longer me that's sinning, but sin that dwells with. So then can I go ahead and sin? It's not me. It's sin dwelling in me. No, that's not what he's talking about. Again, he's trying to show the Jew that their position under the law was one that they could not overcome, that they needed to get out of that. And so that's what he's pointing to. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for I want to do what I don't do, but I hate what I do. What is he talking? He's talking about their condition. The law is illuminating my inability to keep it. How do I know that? I'm in exile. We are in exile. We are living in this condition sold under sin. And so there's that realization of what is taking place. I know that good, verse 18, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my flesh. Flesh is a word that Paul is going to use a lot. And it's not simply the physical stuff that we're made out of. Flesh is humankind in rebellion against God. And it, and the point about Israel according to the flesh is that Israel is paradoxically against God because she is using her ethnic identity as the basis of her claim to God, especially the Torah, having the law, and this idea of I have been circumcised, I'm under the law, I am God's people, and yet I am still in this condition. And so for the Jew, I want to be a good Jew. I want to keep the law of God, but I find myself still in this position of exile. Even though I say I'm God's person and I'm God's people and I have the circumcision to show for it, I have the Sabbath to show for it, I have our dietary laws to show for it, and yet I'm still in the same condition that I am in. 
I am not free from exile. I'm not free from this place of sin. I am not free from the things that have now bound me. And so he's really bringing this out so that we can see that it is their condition without Christ. So then why would God make the law? Remember chapter 5, verse 20, so that trespass might increase. Chapter 7, 13, it says twice, in order that. It's to bring sin to a place in order that Israel's representative might take that sin to himself so that sin could be condemned. And here is where we really start to come around and get to Paul's whole point of this argument. He's been laboring getting to this place. Why is the law here? In order that you might understand completely your condition and also recognize that what has to happen is someone from Israel's representative needs to deal with their condition. Who is Israel's representative? Jesus. Okay? It has to be Christ. So sin had like the serpent deceived me, but God through the law was in a sense deceiving sin by drawing sin to a place where it could at last be dealt with. Why would God give the law? Just to say, yeah, see, the law just shows you're all sinners. Now I don't need it anymore. Was that his purpose? Was the law then only to point to our sin? Was the law not good? The law was given so that Israel would see God's plan all along. And so quick review. Israel was God's chosen people. God called Abraham, said, through Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations. Why did God choose these people? Remember we talked about it was to deal with the sin of the world. It was to deal with the fallen world that we were in. God chose Abraham, not Moses and not the law. God chose the promise, the covenant with Abraham. And so God chose Abraham to deal with the sin with the world. How are they to deal with the sin with the world? By teaching truths. They can't deal with the depth of that sin. Sin is a force that must be condemned and Israel is God's answer to the problem of sin because Israel is the place where sin is going to be illuminated, not so that they can be condemned, but so that they can hand this burden of election over to the elect Messiah who will die on the cross and condemn sin. Let me go through that again because this is at the heart of what Paul is talking about, okay? How are they going to deal with the sin of the world? Okay, it's a force that's too strong for them and God's answer to the problem of sin because Israel is in the place where now sin is going to be illuminated. How is sin illuminated? Through the law. God is going to illuminate what sin is through the Jewish people and them having the law not so that they would be condemned, but so that they can hand this burden. We've been used by God to be a light to the world and show the world what this sin is, but this is a burden that we cannot bear. It is too strong for us. We cannot keep this law. We cannot be right with God. And so what Israel has to do is hand this burden 
over to the elect Messiah who will die on the cross and now condemn sin. And so the whole purpose that God has called these people, called Abraham, to give the promise, I'm going to make a covenant with you, and then gives a law to Moses. Moses shows people that they're still connected to the law, that they've transgressed, and it's lighting up the fact that you are not what you are supposed to be. They cannot break out of this. Well, what are we supposed to do? Well, God has chosen you to be the light of the world, but we can't bear this light. It's too much for us. What are we going to do? You are going to hand it over to your representative, to Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so it's not that, well, you'll keep the law. Well, you can't keep the law. Well, get someone who can keep the law. He'll die for you guys and now you're okay. No, God is saying the burden that I gave to this people was so it could show the world that it is a burden too strong for them, but it is not too strong for his representative, which is Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 21, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. I am in a position like Cain, and the law has two different sides to it. It's showing me what I am, but it's also pulling me to this place where I know I'm not going to keep it. I'm in this divisive place. I've got two hearts, as James talks about, or two minds that James talks about. Cain had two hearts in the Israel tradition he had this understanding god spoke to him and said you know when he didn't receive his offering he said why are you upset if you do what is right won't you be accepted but sin crouches at the door waiting to devour it but devour you but you must master it but he couldn't and israel is in that same place here's the law here if you do what's right won't you be accepted but they couldn't but they didn't And so they were in this position like Cain. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Every good Jew did. Psalm 119 verse 16 says, I delight in your law, O Lord. I I know it's good. I know it's right. If you know it's good and you know it's right, why don't you keep it? I see another law. At work in me, verse 23, waging against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Do you see how this fits to the Jew and their position with the law and not being able to get past what the law declares? And so Paul is identifying to a T what it is like to be a Jew without Christ, to be a Jew who is stuck in Adam without the deliverer, to be a Jew who is in exile still, but can't be free, because that's exactly where they found themselves in this position. And he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who's going to wreck Deliver me from this solidarity of Adam. Who's going to deliver me from this place that I am in? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ our Lord. We are no longer 
under the law that holds us under the light saying, this is what you are. This is where you failed. We are no longer bound by that. We are now accepted because of Jesus Christ through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's sin, but my flesh a slave to the law of sin. And so I see now that through Christ there is deliverance, but through the law there is the slavery. And that's what Paul is bringing about in this chapter, this kind of schizophrenic thing that's taking place. And and we need to stop here because, again, I don't want to just tell us what Paul is saying to these people. I want to take what he's saying to these people and apply it to us. If Paul is dealing with this place of you have been committed to this belief system, you've been committed to this way of life, and it has not gotten you anywhere. It has only brought you condemnation. We need to understand that religion can do the same thing for us. It can bring us into a condemnation. If we are under a belief system that requires us to live according to a law, and we can do the same thing as people who now follow Christ and just have a different set of laws. And pretty soon it's like, well, you're accepted if you do all the right things. Are you good enough? And let me ask, is anyone here good enough? Don't raise your hand because you'd, you'd be in trouble. How can you say you're good enough? You see, I could always throw that out. Is anyone here perfect and keeping everything right with God? Well, no, I'm not. Okay, what are you going to do with that? Are you stuck? Are you locked into that? Is that where you find yourself? And that's exactly the same condition you would find yourself. But here's the good news. The burden of being perfect doesn't rest on you. The burden has been lifted from you because it has been placed on Christ. And don't you know that you have died when you were baptized to the identity of this old person and you have been raised in Christ. And so this is now your new identity no matter where you find yourself. Because you will always find yourself if you are trying to keep some form of law connected to Adam. You will never be good enough. Why do you keep trying to be? Why do you think that if you do enough, you will be holier? Do you really think you can be holy enough for God? Do you want that burden? Do you want that weight on you? Well then, is the law sinful? Does it matter? Well, of course the law is good. It's pointing us to what is true. But the way we get there isn't by being good enough. The way we get there is through the promise of God. Remember the covenant with Abraham. That's all that he's been pointing to. Who made the covenant? God made the covenant. Who walked through the sacrifice? God is the one who walked through the sacrifice. God is the one who works in you to do his good pleasure. And so what is necessary for us is us to recognize our new identity in Christ. And that's where he's pushing us to here. He's taking us to this place where we recognize that I can't get past this law and the transgression. That is my flesh. But I'm not stuck there. And so he leads us into therefore. There is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What is the law of sin and death? That's this. It's the law, the Torah, that connected us to Adam. We are not held under by that. There is a new law that is giving, getting us, been given to us. And he's pointing us back again to chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. This whole Adam's condemnation. Who's con- there is no condemnation. What condemnation? Well, that's what he talked about in chapter 5. The condemnation that came through Adam, through one man, sin came into the world. We're not under that condemnation. We're not under that anymore. And again, he's taking us back, and then it even goes back further. Chapter 2, those who have been given the image of God, but who have given it up and worship the creature rather than the creator. Okay, We are not condemned by that sin. And it's all that same sin that Adam took Listen to the creature rather than the creator. Gave himself to that. There's no condemnation. We're talking about that law court language. It's dealing with that justification language. This law of the Torah, which condemned, has been my accuser that bridges me to the Adamic nature. That law has been my connection to this Adamic family, solidarity. It has... It's had its grip broken. This thing that held me to this identity has now been broken. And the law that unites me to Christ has set me free from the law that once joined me to Adam. Why? How did it do that? Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh and in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the vindication of the law of the Torah. You see, he is coming to a place where he's saying the Torah is good. The law is good. He was never condemning it even though it looked like, well, everything the Torah did was bad. It brought us to this place where it illuminated sin. It held us under sin, but he's bringing us to this place where he's vindicating it. The law is good, but it's weak. The law wanted to give life, but it couldn't because there was something wrong with the law. No, because there was something wrong with the people. God had to deal with sin, which was the problem, and he had to deal with the flesh, that Adamic humanity, where sin reigned. How is God going to deal with these aspects? How is he going to deal with sin itself and with the flesh that connects us to Adam and our humanity? How? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sin offering, he has condemned sin in the flesh. When he says, God sending his own son. The son of God in the first century Judaism is first of all, Israel's representative. In other words, the son of God is 
who Israel is supposed to be represented. Secondary, it's the Messiah. First century Christianity, it grows even still. It is God made flesh to be Israel and the Messiah. Remember, Jesus was not just the incarnation of God. He was the incarnation of Israel. That's why they are God's people. Because of the promise God made and God used an Israelite to fulfill the promise, to fulfill the covenant. And so when he says sending his own son, they know that means someone who represents us. That's our Messiah. And so he sent that. And then the sin offering. He sent him to be a sin offering. What is a sin offering? In Leviticus and Numbers, a sin offering deals with the sin of ignorance. Well, in Numbers, Leviticus and Numbers deals with the sin of ignorance and unwilling sin because, as he has said in chapter 7, Israel was guilty of ignorant and unwillingly sinning. They just were not aware of the fact that they were rejecting this truth that God was dealing with. But it's also dealing with that sin that they had to recognize was a part of themselves. That which I do, I do don't know what I'm, I want to do what's right, but I don't do what he just said in chapter seven. What is that? That's their sin. That's what God is dealing with, that sin of ignorance. And so a sin offering is exactly what Israel needed. And it's exactly what we need. And so he's condemning sin, verse three there. He condemned sin in the flesh. God gathered sin together into Israel by the Torah, illuminated it, and God allowed Jesus to be Israel's anointed representative so that when Jesus went to the cross, he carried with him the weight of sin that was heaped up by the law. Okay, so Jesus from Israel's lineage fulfills what they could not do takes upon himself the condemnation that was theirs because the law had revealed it and the weight of it was heaped on him. And so we see that in Jesus, this is fulfilled. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. And that's powerful because the righteous requirement of the law is now met in us. Why? Because Jesus took the full weight of it and condemned it for us. He's bringing about an understanding. The requirement of the law is not just a moral behavior. Okay, it's more than that. Remember, in Deuteronomy, it says, I set before you life and death. It doesn't, he doesn't say, I set before you right and wrong. He says, I set before you life and death. Choose life that you might live. Choose life that you may live. The end is the idea of resurrection. Yes, return from exile. Yes, forgiveness of sin. Yes, God's new world, God's new covenant. All that's packaged here together 
is to be revealed in us who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. In verse 5, he says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh desires, what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. Remember, choose life that you might live. It's not choose right, choose life. The choice that we're making here is who we are going to be identified with. It's not the mind of the flesh is you think about bad things. No, the mind of the flesh is locked into this idea that I have to serve God and have to keep his law in order to do what's right. That's where he's addressing this here. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Notice this word flesh, this human beings that are in resistance to God. It keeps coming up and he goes, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh. Now there's a change. You're not in this position. What position? The one we just talked about in chapter seven. You are not, oh, wretched man that I am. No, you have been delivered now by Christ. You, however, not in this realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. He wants to make that clear. There is something necessary for you to belong to Christ, and that is the spirit of God dwelling in you. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin... The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. As he brings this conclusion, if the Messiah or the Messianic life is in you, because the covenant relationship, that's what the idea of righteousness is. Remember, if you have this righteousness that God gives, which he talks about in verse 10. The Spirit gives life because of righteousness. What is that righteousness? It's the covenant that God has made. If you have this messianic life in you, again, it's God's righteousness, then you belong to him. And if the Spirit who raised up Jesus, in verse 11, it's interesting, who is Jesus? Well, it's the individual. It's the man who was born in, of, from Nazareth. If you were, if the spirit of him who raised this man, Jesus, from the dead is living in you, that's your temple. It's temple theology here. He who raised, now he uses Christ. This is Israel's representative, the Messiah, from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because his spirit lives in you. Paul is redefining Jewish theology. Remember Jewish theology? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's one God, this monotheistic idea. He's also redefining election. What was election? Election was we are God's people because God gave us his promise to Abraham. He gave us his law through Moses. So we are God's elect people. He's redefining election. Election is now who God gives his spirit to. He's redefining all that reshapes, all this reshapes around Christ and his spirit. He's redefining what it is to them 
to belong to God. It is no longer a matter of heritage that you thought you had through the law, through Abraham to God. He is now saying, no, it goes through Christ, who is the fulfillment of what Abraham has done, who has borne the weight of the law, who is given to us by God. And so he's redefining the Jewish theology. He's redefining what it is to be God's elect. He's redefining eschatology, the end, because now he's pointing us to resurrection. Remember, in the Jewish mind, eschatology was when Israel will reign. God will vindicate us and show us that we are his people and we will stop being in exile. And so where they thought that the end would be here, somewhere at the end of the world, God says, no, it's here in Christ. This is where I have fulfilled all the promises that I've made. You don't have to wait now for exile to be over. It is over in Christ. And so the Jewish person who was trying to keep the law was still in exile Oh, wretched man, who can deliver me? Because I serve God with my mind, but I'm living in this bondage. I can't get out of the exile. I can't get out of the Adamic burden that I am still under. Well, that's all changed. It's all changed because of Christ. And that changes for us. We, you know, we step into this relationship with God and we take these things for granted. You know, we have no concept of what this all means to that Hebrew who has been living under this burden of law. And we just step in, oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm free in Christ. I have the Spirit of God in my life. We don't realize what it means. What? You, you have the Spirit of God? Yes, it's all been redefined. What? You don't have to keep the law? No, we don't have to keep the law. The law and its weight has been put on the representative on Jesus. You mean I am now out of exile and I am now God's elect and it's proven to me because I am delivered? And that's the eschatology. It's I am now with Christ. And we step into it and say, oh, this is great. This is easy. And the Jew says, this is unbelievable. The weight that we have carried for centuries, having to be the light of the world, but being in exile. I mean, look at, these are God's people. They were in exile more than they've been free. It was the Egyptians. It was the Babylonians. It was the Persians. It's the Romans. Here's God's people, and they're always in exile. Why? Because God is going to use their transgression, revealed through the law, to show the world that I am going to deal with sin for all flesh in the person of Jesus. And God used the nation of Israel to illuminate his plan. He used the law to bring sin into this one place where he could judge it in the person of Jesus Christ. And now he's redefining for them what it is to be called by God. It's not a matter of circumcision. It's not a matter of keeping the Sabbath. It's a matter of God's spirit being in you and you being in Christ. And the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now going to raise your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Temple theology. 
No, the Spirit of God dwells in the temple, in the holiest of holies. That's been redefined. The Spirit of God now dwells in you if you are in Christ. Now can you see why he says, thanks be to God. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Why? Because the condemnation, the judgment of Adam has fallen on Christ and he has borne the burden and we are free from it. We are free from that burden. The burden that fell on men has been delivered and now a perfect man is in charge. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. All power has been given to me, said Jesus in the resurrection. Heaven and earth. There is now a man who has been given all power. Why? Because God, remember in the image of Adam, had given him dominion over the earth. What had happened? He gave that dominion up. He lost that dominion. Dominion has gone back to a man. How God created it, the man, Jesus Christ. And so he's brought us to this place where now we are in him and we are more than conquerors through Christ who strengthens us. We are now raised with him. We are now, we have life and he will give life to our mortal bodies if his spirit is in us. So that is dealing with chapter seven and eight, one through 11. Are there any questions? Yes. I have not come to break the law, but to fill it. That's exactly what he's talking about here. You see, Paul all along is saying the law is good. The law was meant to do something. What was it meant to do? It was meant to reveal the sin, the transgression that's there so that the whole world could see what that sin was. He used the nation of Israel to be that. And then Jesus steps in and he says, okay, I take the fullness of this law and I will deal with the burden of it. And so that's what he means by fulfilled the law. What the law was meant to do was show sin. And Jesus says, I'll take that sin and I'll deal with it because you cannot. And so the law doesn't disappear. It's fulfilled in the person of Christ. Does that make sense? Or what what other question? I mean, is there something that you're thinking specifically regarding that? Okay, because it's important that's kind of what Paul has been talking about throughout the book of Romans. You know, we as Gentiles and Christians, we don't keep all the laws. I mean, I don't. I eat shrimp, you know, and I work on Saturdays, which is the Sabbath, and I don't keep the festivals and different things. We, we don't do the things that are in the law. Why not? Why don't we do the things of the law? Because the law has been dealt with through Christ. We don't need to do those things. And and again, our idea of law sometimes is different than the Hebrew law that we've been talking about. The Hebrew, when they talk about the law, they talk about circumcision, Sabbath, and the dietary laws. To them, that encompassed the laws. It doesn't mean that, you know, uh, adultery is still you know, or isn't bad anymore. It's still bad. It's still the law reveals those things. It's not like, well, I don't have to worry about anything like that. No, you are still identified with Christ and Christ is the fulfillment. It doesn't change away the morals that God has. 
If anything, it says, no, these were right. I proved they were right, but I dealt with the fact that you were in violation of them. And so now a woman caught in adultery doesn't have to be stoned to death. Why? Because God says, I'll I'll take that. I'll take the blame. Go and leave your life of sin. But wait, the law says we are to condemn her. Let he who's without sin cast the first stone. That's all of us. That's what he's saying here. You're all in transgression. You're all connected to Adam. None of you have the right to judge because you're all in the same situation. Well, then who can deliver us? I can. I can take the weight of all that sin upon myself. The one who could condemn her didn't because he was the one who's able to deliver her. Now, he's going to go on and try and bring some more of this in chapter 8, the understanding of walking in the spirit and what it means. Because as he's been building up these questions, he keeps saying, okay, if the law is pointing to sin, if law is given so that sin will be revealed, then is the law good? Is, is What's the purpose of the law? And this is the culmination of his whole argument that he's been talking about the law. The law was bringing all the awareness to the nation of Israel and was bringing to the nation of Israel the awareness of sin and was bringing the awareness of sin to the sin offering Jesus who was going to take that burden for the world. And so Jesus fulfilled the law. It wasn't broken. He fulfilled it. He took all the weight of it upon himself. And so that's why Jesus said, I didn't, I didn't come to break the law. I've come to fulfill it. Well, what does that mean? That's just what he did. That's what this is all about. What you cannot do, I'll do. What you cannot bear, I'll bear. And so he dealt with sin in the flesh. It had to be a human who dealt with the sin. Why? Because God made the agreement with a human. He gave dominion to a man. Man lost it, gave dominion away. The covenant that was made with Abraham, Abraham fell into sin. Moses, the commandments, God showing them that sin, all the law did was point them to the fact that they couldn't keep the law. How is God going to deal with the fact that they have broken the law, that he has failed his covenant? Well, remember, God's the one who made the covenant. And that man has given dominion. Well, now dominion has come back to a man, to the man, Jesus Christ. God has fulfilled the promise that he made and that he created all along. See, in the very beginning, when God, when Adam fell and God told Eve that I will create enmity between the serpent, between thy seed and the serpent, and his, you will Crush it. He will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. What was that all prophetic to? That was prophetic to what was going to happen in Christ. God was going to work all along to get to this point. And so all the things that God has done, the covenant that he made with Abraham was to call a people. Why, why did he call them? Through you I will bless the nations. How are you going to bless the nations? Well, it's through Abraham. Okay, how are they blessing the world? Well, they never did. They never quite did bless the world. 
How, how did they bless the world? They went into exile. They were in Egypt. They were in Babylon. They were constantly being persecuted. They were, you know, and then in time of Jesus, what, they were still, how were they blessing the world? They were very religious and they were very, you know, exclusive. Well, God was going to bless them and use all these things to get them to the point of Jesus Christ. That's how he is going to bless the world through them. And so God kept his promise. He used the nation of Israel and he helped them by giving them a law to illuminate their condition and man's condition and then show, I will deal with your condition through the person of Jesus. And so that's the whole point of the law was to help us see our need for deliverance. Christ was the one who fulfilled that. And so it's best I can answer it anyway, if that makes any sense. It's not kosher, or lobster, or bacon, or chorizo. There's a lot of things we couldn't eat if we if we had to abide by the law. Yeah. So what's wrong with shrimp? Shrimp scampi. Um, and again, remember, as Paul is writing this book, the whole point is you've got people all their life who have been living according to this law where you can't eat shrimp, where you have to be circumcised, where you have to keep the Sabbath, where these things are required of you. And then you've got us coming in here. These Italians come in. Hey, you want some shrimp scampi? Come on. Hey, let's go. Hey, it's Saturday. I don't care. Come on. Let's hop and go for a ride. And they're like, what are you doing? You can't do this. And there was a lot of friction there. How do you deal with that friction? Paul is telling the Gentiles you owe where you are in Christ to them. And he's telling the Jews, you have nothing to boast about. You cannot keep the law itself. You owe everything to the person of Christ. Don't put them under a burden that you yourself couldn't keep. And so, to the Gentile, it's foolish. You and your laws, that's silly. To the Jews, a stumbling block. Why? Because... Christ has now delivered them. And so Jesus becomes foolishness to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews because of what he did for both of them. And so they had to understand that position. Any other questions? No? I know this is a different kind of study, you guys. I don't know if, you know, it's... Well, I mean, what I've, you know, what I wanted to do through the book of Romans here instead of like something that I would do on a Sunday or what I, I do where I just kind of give a, a, a talk about the things that he's mentioning is I'm trying to get us to understand if I'm going to talk about the book of Romans chapter 7, I have to know who Paul was talking to, the context that he's in. Otherwise, I can pull something out of chapter 7 and say, yeah, me as a Christian, sometimes I think, well, I don't want to do the things I do, but I do the things I do, but who's going to deliver me? You know, God's there. And it has nothing to do with what Paul's actually saying. But I've heard sermons like that. And that's not what it's be- what's being said here. And so what we have to do, if I was going to give a talk, and I shared a little bit about what religion does and what Christ does to deal with the burden of religion, of trying to be good enough. 
that's what I would talk about if I was to just do a talk on chapter 7. But I wanted to show you how we would get to that talk. Okay? Because I believe God wants to make some of you teachers. And if you're going to teach, you have to first have an understanding of what it is. And it's not just, well, yeah, I think this is what it means. No, you have to know who's Paul talking to. What is the time and that he's, the tension that's there that he's talking about? Why is he addressing them so heavily? Why did it take seven chapters to come to this place of finally revealing the law is good? Here was its whole purpose. Because it took seven chapters in the Hebrew mind to get out of those things that have been there for centuries. Our whole life, this is what we've been about. And now you're telling us it's all changed it's been redefined because of jesus jesus has now done what we couldn't do he's fulfilled this purpose in our lives that takes a lot you don't just say yeah yeah jesus came he did it no you're talking the thousands of years of believing a system and now jesus steps in and changes this to be something that well we thought it meant this we thought election meant we were God's people. And we thought we were God's people because God gave us the law. And Paul said, no, you're God's people because God made a covenant with Abraham. All the law did was prove that you were connected to Adam. Oh, so the law isn't what made us God's people. It's the covenant that God made with Abraham that made us God's people. Well, we believe, you know, that and the end times that we are going to come back. Ezekiel told us there would be a resurrection and God would gather his people. And God did raise his people in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ rose from the dead and you are alive in Christ. You're baptized to his death. You're alive with him. His spirit dwells in you. The resurrection has taken place in you. You don't have to wait till the end. Oh yeah, there's still going to be a resurrection. But the resurrection you are waiting for has happened in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's a whole lot of stuff for them to try and embrace. Well, Peter said a lot of his things are hard to understand. And, and gosh, I'm, I'm not claiming I understand it. I mean, I've shared with you, there are a lot of people who are very smart who don't agree with everything that I've explained. You know, N.T. Wright is one of the guys who I've been, you know, uh, studying under, um, and I just think, he makes sense. A lot of these other things, especially chapter 7, don't make sense. Chapter 9, when he goes into chapter 9, Esau have I love, or Jacob have I love, Esau have I hated. What is that about? Why does he all sudden start talking about well, Potter has the right to do whatever he wants with the clay? Where is that coming from? That seems like an off-the-cuff kind of a thing to say. Well, no, he had a reason, and it's still connected to all the things that we're talking about. So... Okay, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, thank you for this time. I pray, Lord, that is, this would be helpful in our understanding of you and the things that you want for us as your people. I pray you would help us to get past all the information and hold on to the things that are helpful in our relationship with you. Lord, but to get there, we need to know the information to some degree. And I pray this has been helpful. And I ask you to continue to illuminate our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen.